Welcome to Amplify. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashad. Welcome, welcome to Amplified. Very exciting show today. And we are, of course, sponsored by the Keep Smiling Movement and the Red Carpet Connection. And that is with Andrea Adams-Miller as our producer. And she is going to give a big welcome because we want to get our guest on as soon as possible. So much to discuss with our guest. How are you, Andrea? I'm absolutely fabulous. Super excited that today we have William Paul Young with us. Um, He's often just referred to as Paul Young. He's a Canadian author, and he lives in Oregon. And the amazing thing about this guy is he's got the most kindest, beautifulest heart, and we get to hear all about that today. He is the best-selling author of the book that has sold over 25 million copies, and that is The Shaft. He's also written Crossroads and Eve, and I'm so excited that you're on. Please join us, William. I am or William Paul Young. I am standing up right now giving you a standing ovation. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can see you from here, so that's uh, great. Thank you so much. Yes. I'm so honored to be with you, truly. Thank you. And also, congratulations. Excited. And also, congratulations on your music career. I mean, you've spun out a couple of big hits. Oh, okay. Uh, Anytime you go, <laughs> yep. I know. <laughs> Is that one of the reasons we got William to the uh, your name? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Well, no, the William thing was a joke, and because uh, I'm I am William Paul Young, but nobody in my world knows me as William. So, um, my dad's William Henry goes by Henry. Son's William Chad. Grandson William Gavin. Firstborn, and um, so we all go by our middle names. So when I wrote the shack, I just I put it in there as a joke, and. And it, that part sort of stuck. On the first 15 copies I made at Office Depot, I had The Shack by Mackenzie Allen Phillips, which is, you know, the name of the main character in the novel, and, and with William P. Young. I didn't even put Paul on there. And <laughs> later when it got in print, it stuck. And for the longest time, it was William P. Young. And I'd have friends, like, up in Canada, because I'm Canadian, and they would call me and they'd go like, Hey, Paul, have you read this book by this William Young? I mean, he kind of thinks like you. And I'd say, well, I, I heard he's a heretic. So, you know, it was funny. <laughs> that is funny. Well, we have a, a mutual friend that if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't actually have been connected. So Peter Stropel, uh in Austin, yep. Texas, said, you got to reach out to Paul Young. And thus the text started. And I didn't foresee that a month later I'd be <laughs> kind of in your backyard, so to speak, in Oregon at, at fortunately, a Les Brown event that, led me to the airport around the time that you got that you were willing and ha- able to see me at Starbucks. Exactly right. St. Starbucks over here. Yeah. <laughs> so the patron, about, the, how, the, the patron saint of staying awake in church. That's St. Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So tell me about uh, Peter. How did you guys meet? So uh, on the road. And, you know, he's, he's originally a Canuck himself. So, you know, Instant connection, but uh, his his favorite tagline is, uh, "I'm just gum on your shoe," which is his way of saying, "I'm here to serve you." And um, we just hit it right off and started just telling stories. I think it was in somewhere in Texas or somewhere who knows for sure, but uh, God knows. I'm, uh, but anyway, 
he is a a connector. I've, there's a few people in my life who are connectors, and Peter's one of them. And uh, beautiful, beautiful heart. Love that guy. Yes, so do I. And and he's not bashful about saying he loves you when he does. Ah, <laughs> uh, so. no, he's not. Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited uh, that he was able to think of such a, a grand and beautiful connection. And obviously, I don't, I, I'm not sure if you know this, but from the Keep Smiling uh, book series that we're sending to as many media outlets as we can to give all the unsung heroes and also just the people that have a, a, a big work but not necessarily a big name. For instance, uh, you wouldn't believe how many times I say, "Hey, we have Frank Shankowitz who's written a Keep Smiling book," and they're like, "Okay." great like that and i said no, he's the founder of the make wish foundation they're like oh yeah okay i know that so, exactly. so it's very, yep. the second yeah the second we say paul Young, the shack then everyone gets uh who you are and how much of an impact you've made in the world Sweet. so let's let's start with um actually your your childhood and what kind of caused all these miracles to happen later in life would you uh start off by sharing that, how the beginning kind of happened Sure. Uh, understanding that birth itself is a miracle. So uh, miracles weren't waiting to happen there. They surround us all the time. And um, I was uh, born Canadian when, when I was a year old, 10 months, um, 10 months old. My, my parents moved to the other side of the planet from Canada. They moved to the highlands of New Guinea, where my parents were missionaries, pioneer missionaries. My mom was um, RN, and my dad had come out of the logging camps and <laughs> was a pioneer. And didn't have a chip for being a dad, but uh, r- really knew how to go into the middle of uh, the darkest kind of jungle. We, and, and so I grew up in a valley. New Guinea's un- unusual. It has over 800 unrelated language groups. And uh, our particular tribe was pretty large, but I was the first person from outside of that part of the valley who ever learned their language fluently. So I was the informant when Wycliffe came in and translated it. Hmm. But um, it, it was a beautiful way to grow up. It was a terrible way to grow up. Um, this is back in the day when a lot of missions was, you know, if you do the work of mission, then God will take care of the kids. So I was basically handed over to the Donnie, which wasn't a bad thing for the most part, because I was terrified of my dad anyway. He he just didn't have a chip for being a dad. He he had come out of huge, destroyed background himself, which which I didn't know as a child, and you don't. And so you just assume that, you know, your parents are sort of godlike and they're right and you're wrong. And, um, and I just knew he terrified me. So from the, from the beginning, I didn't want to identify with him. But the Donnie uh, raised me. And so that's my first dreaming language. It's my first true language. And, uh, but that's also where the sexual abuse started was inside the tribal culture. And um, and then at six, I was sent to boarding school, and the big boys would come at night and molest the little boys in a, a missionary boarding school. So that is the background for the the uh, imagery of the shack. The shack, you know, some people have uh, their soul and their heart are pretty put together. That is, they had good help um, building the house on the inside, but there's a whole lot of us that we didn't, and uh, everything in our our history whispered to us that we didn't belong, that we weren't worthy. And, and then on top of it, you know, I come from a very rigid, modern evangelical theological background, which didn't help because that also told me that I had a sin nature. I was depraved. I was a piece of crap. And, and uh, that God in his mercy took, you know, took, showed some kindness sometimes. Jesus was different. You know, I already had a, 
I already had a schizophrenic God when I was growing up. You know, God the Father was someone to be feared from a distance, like my dad. And Jesus was my friend who came to save me from God the Father. And, uh, and so all of that goes into, you know, figuring out that I, ne- I that's where I'm going to store my addictions is in the brokenness of the human heart, you know, my own soul, my shack. And it's not, it's not a habitable place. It's, I don't want to invite anybody in there. That's where all my addictions are. That's where all my secrets are. And uh, it's a house built from shame and lies. And so you build a facade so that you can perform your way, hopefully, into the affection and approval of somebody. And, and you learn to live from the outside in because you've got nothing on the inside. So that is all metaphor that's behind the shack or the place we get stuck or... Um, and, and everyone has to go back to the house on the inside at some point, no matter how much you're performing on the outside and trying to win a name and, and uh, you know, create an identity from the outside in and feel like you're being evaluated uh, according to the expectations of people on the outside. At some point, you have to go back into the inner world and deal with, deal with your history, deal with your addictions, deal with your stuff. Because the unexposed is the unhealed, and if if you're if you keep running from exposure, then you keep uh, creating more mountains of that which at some point is going to come crashing down. But that that's a backhanded grace because when it comes crashing down, then there's an opportunity for for a path toward healing. So. So you know, we came back to Canada when I was about ten. My dad was an itinerant pastor. I went to thirteen schools before I graduated high school, all up in Canada. And then I I bailed out. I was the firstborn and and just got out of there. Um, went to Bible school and then eventually to seminary. Um, was headed to California when I stopped and met a community of people, and uh, that's where I met Kim. So people say, how come you ended up in Oregon? I always go, I met a woman. <laughs> and uh, this, <laughs> this woman saved my life, thankfully. I mean, she was, she was really a godsend. And, what's, and what age was that that you met, Kim? I was, um, I was about 22 um, when I met her. I, ju- I graduated, my undergraduate degree was from Warner Pacific College in Portland. I'd done three years at CBC up in uh, Saskatchewan that uh, is now Ambrose University in Calgary. And, um, but uh, I, when I graduated, I got hired for a couple of years uh, by Jerry Cook in, at the Four Square Church in Gresham, Oregon. So I was, my job was to work with my own age group, the 20 to 30-year-olds. And we had sort of the, one of the going things in town at the time. And, and one night, Kim's, Kim walks in with two of her five sisters. She has five sisters and two brothers. And uh, she's a Minot, North Dakota, you know, Minnesota, uh, where there's no Fifty Shades of nothing, right? There's, it is this or that. That's it. And, uh, mm. But she walks in, and I notice her. And there's, you know, there's anywhere from 300 to 700 of us at the time. And, um, and I'm in charge, so I changed what we were planning to do so we could break up into groups of two and pray for each other, you know? Power corrupts. I don't know what else to tell you. Well, but that's I have how a couple- I met her. Well, I had a couple of questions because you did have a lot of information there. So um, the sexual abuse actually stopped when you left New Guinea, right? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, because, kinda. yes, I was out of that environment. 
Um, but by 12, I was completely addicted to porn. I mean, it just, the, the abuse and other things and the sense of not belonging. Because porn, porn is the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one. And, um, and it's, it's a way to, to see if you can, even through, you know, paper imagery, you, you, you're hoping that someone would see you back and, and, and love you unconditionally. So it's a way to love yourself. But so, you know, what do you call that as a continuation of the abuse or not? I don't know, but, but the uh, direct abuse stopped there. And, um, but I was really messed up. Right. And when you, so you were carrying that with you and first and foremost, had all this not happened to you, we're probably not talking to you on the radio right now. And you're not giving this gift to the world to really um, examine how we can deal with that type of situation. Right. So, and, I, and I'm really, I want to be very clear about this, that, that God is never the author of evil. And that right. um, it's, but, and so, so when we're talking about, look what has happened as, you know, even through the damage and the losses and the brokenness and everything else, it's, it's a credit to the redeeming genius of God, but it never justifies the damage. Like, like um, you know, the, the big major event in my life was to, Kim caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends, because I drug all my crap into the marriage. And, and uh, so that became the, the place where I had to make a choice of either to see if there was any possibility to change or kill myself. And, and you look back and you go like, uh, yeah, adultery is never justifiable. Like the cross, you can't, you can't justify the cross, even though, you know, look what's happened as a result of all that horrific stuff. And, and adultery just blows up the hearts of so many people. And I hurt so many people. But the, the shack doesn't justify it. Or what's happened in terms of the ripple effect of my life doesn't justify what I did. And um, it was wrong. But it's but that God can climb into the thing can climb onto a cross which is fundamentally wrong, um, and by virtue of submitting to that, the redeeming genius of God can now embrace the cosmos, and and God can reconcile Himself in Christ to the world, to the cosmos. Actually, is the word, and um, but that's a that's a praise to the redeeming genius of God, and and never a justification for the evil that, that God then climbed into. You know, we have this thing uh, in my people, at least modern evangelicals, where we want to we sort of blame God, like, well, well, this horrific thing, this child dying, this, this whatever, is part of a big plan of God. You know, it's ordained by God. Well, if that's true, then God truly is the author of evil, or, or has no right to be angry about it, or has, and the Holy Spirit surely has no right to grieve, and Jesus has no right to stand in front of Lazarus' tomb and just be undone by the presence of that which is wrong, which is death and the loss of a friend and all of that. So um, I can look back and go like, you know, people have asked me, if you could go back knowing what you know now and everything that's happened in your life and the, and the influence that it's, it's been, would you, would you go back and change anything? I go, yeah, absolutely. If, if I could go back and, uh, and um, change one time that I hurt one person, 
and it, and it cost me, you know, all the shack and all this stuff. I do it in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat, because I am so clear about the fact that this, what has happened is the redeeming genius of God that I participated in. Um, but it's, it, if I could go back and change. So here's a, here's a little line that I think will help somebody out there because it's helped me so much that regret is a part of my life, you know, and, and we think that all things have passed away, all things become new. And, and we use it as a form of denial or repression where, where regret is truly significant. So I've learned to live with regret as part of grieving, but not part of shame. Shame dominated my life, and, and regret can whisper in your ear. See, you are a piece of crap. See, you are worthless. See, you don't matter. See, you are depraved. And, and that is an attack against our being, our ontology. That is an attack against being created in the image and likeness of God. And shame has no place in the human experience. Guilt does. Like, yes, I hurt people. I got to own it. And I got to ask for forgiveness. And, I, and, and then I participate as the Holy Spirit uh, works in me to help me change. That's the repentance part over time. And, uh, but shame, no place in the human experience. It is wrong uh, from the core. And yet that's, you know, between shame and fear, you've got a definition of most, uh, most of where human beings are at. Well, I have a question about your parents during this period. So first of all, uh, they were unaware that this was happening to you as a child? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, my mom was aware of what my dad was doing to, to the boys, especially me, but, but she, uh, she was a follower. She was, you know, she was old school and, um, and so I submitted that kind of submission, you know, so, so she, she knew and, um, but they didn't have a clue about the abuse and, and it was it was uh, the code of silence at boarding school, you know, where I was six years old when the abuse continued in boarding school, and and uh, and it was I mean the what was communicated to missionary kids who experienced abuse, and I I've, I've been with hundreds of them around the world because our generation kind of got slaughtered, and and we weren't the only generation that got slaughtered in the name of the mission or the gospel, but. Um, it was communicated that, you know, if we told anybody, if we said anything, that people would go to hell um, mm. because uh, we'd affect the mission, you know, and and if we affected the mission, then their blood would be on our hands. And, you know, you, you put that kind of a burden on a six-year-old, they have no capacity to deal with that, or a seven-year-old, or an eight-year-old, or a ten-year-old. And so... Uh, you know, it became a very dangerous place. But yes, they, they didn't know. They brought the best they could. They really did. And, uh, and it, it wasn't great, but it was the best they had. Um, and I think that's, that's why we have an ability to, to forgive and, and not judge. You know, we can sit inside of Jesus' words where he's on the cross going like, you know, Papa, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And we know that he doesn't say it unless he hears the father say it. So he knows, you know, Papa God's already been saying, son, they really don't know what they're doing. It doesn't justify what they're doing, but they don't know. They don't understand. They don't comprehend. My parents didn't. And, um, but they did the best that they had the capacity to do. And, uh, you know, I, uh, my dad turns 90. My mom passed away two years ago. Oh, it'll be two years, New Year's Eve day. 
and my my dad is turning ninety in a, in a week or a couple of weeks, and um, and you know on his on his eightieth birthday, I went for a walk, and uh, I was just perturbed about stuff, and uh, you know the the way God speaks to me in my heart is in my imagination and conversation and you know uh, a nudge because uh, um, that's my language and God knows my language and. And, and it was almost a tangible sense of an arm going around my shoulder, comforting me, you know. And um, and I hear inside that inside conversation, Paul, you know your dad. He, he hasn't known how to be a father for 60 years. He's, he's not going to suddenly figure it out. And I said, yeah, I know that. And, and then I hear, if it's okay to, for you, um, I will be all that to you and more. And it did something in me. This is ten years ago, and it and it it allowed me to free my father from my expectations that he become a father to me. He all those years, whether he knew it or not, whether I knew it or not, he was under the bondage of my expectations to produce something that he didn't have a capacity to do. And um, and that shift ten years ago allowed me to let him go or let the, let the imagination of what it would be like to have a dad who really knew how to say that he loved you, you know, or knew how to call you instead of you calling him. And it, and it freed me up so that I can begin to see him as a human being bringing to the table what he has, uh, you know, with the baggage that he carried from his childhood that I now know a lot about as an older sister who's a historian and we have a big book about the damages and, and the joys, but a lot about the damages. So I know where he comes from. And that's given a grace to our relationship that has allowed us to, to move. And it's a kind and tender as he gets more fragile. It, it, it even gets more tender, but man, you know, um, because I couldn't, let go of those expectations for so many years. You know, I opened myself up to looking for a dad figure, um, uh, dropping boundaries that I should have had, and you know, all kinds of other stuff that happens when one you're sitting with uh, uh, un, unexposed expectations, and and another one you're sitting as a judge. You know, you're 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 judging your own dad because he he can't do what you need him to do, and and it doesn't justify that he couldn't. Um, but that's what forgiveness is about. It's about letting go. And, um, so that's, that's where I am with my dad. And he's obviously aware because he's alive. He's read the shack. Um, oh, he might have read the shack. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Okay. And your mom did not because she died around the time. It well, came no, out. she, da, 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 she, no, she just died two years ago. So, okay. so my, my mom, my mom, she's more communication central. So, she finds out about the shack from her hairdresser and her doctor, right? Because right. She's, a, she's at her hairdresser and her doctor, and they're going like, we're reading this book. You should read this book. And she looks at it and realizes that I wrote it. Her son uh-huh. wrote this book because, there's, you know, she's looking in the back, and it says he was raised among a cannibal tribe you know, or Stone Age tribe or whatever it says. And, uh, but she won't admit. She didn't tell them that she was my mom. Like, because she's not sure yet about whether it's a good thing to admit or not. So she <laughs> buys the book to try to read it. And when, when God comes through the door, God the Father, as a large black African-American woman, 
she just shut the book and called my sister and and she said, Debbie, your brother is a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) And she got stuck stuck right there. And it took about five years for her to get unstuck. And one of the most beautiful God is a weaver stories that that you'll ever hear about how my mom got unstuck. And so when she's, you know, she's a couple of weeks before she died, I was with her and, and she's looking at me funny across the room. I go, what mom? She goes, you're my son. Who would have thought? <laughs> and I go, yeah, who would have thought? But it turns out those were her last words to me. <laughs> and who would have thought? And what was uh, the reason, or I, I can't imagine that you're writing such a, a big book, but you didn't at the time know it was such a big book, possibly. Um, I did. That you didn't, yeah, I, I know, no I remember, book. I remember our story, our, our conversation. So, um, but you didn't tell her that you were going to be writing this book, and why not? Oh, no. No, because we don't have that kind of communication, you know, gotcha. and so um, my dad set the pace as far as, so. I'd call, we'd go up and visit him sometimes, you know, and, and, uh, we were up there one time and Kim, I'm, she's standing in the kitchen and I'm sitting at the table and my dad's standing next to me and, and Kim, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota, she turns to my dad and goes, so Henry, have you even read the shack? And I'm going like, oh great, here we go. You've sort of violated every family system on the planet right here. And, uh, and my dad turns his back to me, folds his arm and says to Kim, well, you know, if one were to read an author like this, they should probably take into consideration proper theology. But it seems to be doing some good for people, so who am I to say? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, what does that mean? And <laughs> and I'm going like the author, the author's sitting right here, like right behind you. But, but that's as close as we got to know whether he's actually read it or not. I, I think uh, it's a curiosity killed the cat. He he had to read it. I mean, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I would be surprised if he hasn't, but it, it so was contrary to his, you know, his theological background. Although he, he did come listen to me speak one time. And as you know, it's one of those old churches where you shake everybody's hand on the way out. And, and so I, I was there and I was hosted by a pastor and he's, he's there shaking people's hands. And my dad comes by me and he leans in and he says, I think that was the best sermon I've heard in my life. Hmm. And it's just like, okay, that'll cover a multitude of years, you know? <laughs> That's just a kiss of grace. Unexpected, and in, in the best sense of unexpected, because when you learn to live without expectations, everything becomes a gift. Well, from a, before we dive into the shack more, um, from a standpoint of parenthood and, and children going through sexual abuse, what is, I mean, I imagine you as a father had a totally different uh, view on making sure your kids were all right and they were safe. Uh, what, what advice would you give? Well, one thing, you better deal with it or else it's going to spill out in other ways. You know, so my tendency was to overprotect my children because there is no way that I'm going to let this happen, right? And, um, and also, I didn't acknowledge it. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't deal with it. You know, it was part of well, that's part of the old things that are passed away, you, don't, you know. And so my constant sense was, I, I'm not going to deal with my history. I don't have to deal with my history. Like, it's gone. It's old. But that's so not true. And um, you don't want to deal with your history because it'll expose the degree of shame that exists in your heart and stays there. That it continues to ripple into your world. 
Um, and again, going back to that little phrase, uh, the unexposed is the unhealed. And, and when it says that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world, that that word convict in the in the New Testament, in the Greek, is the word in the Greek to expose. Not to humiliate you. You know, we are, God's, God is not about shaming anybody uh, because shame is contrary to the very nature and being of God. The exposure is so that we can be healed. And, um, and it's rough uh, to be exposed. Some of us, we're so broken we can't ask for help. You know, I had a thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And, um, and uh, I, I couldn't ask for help. I had to get caught. And it was getting caught that pushed me to the place where it's either like, get help or die. And, um, and that's when I pulled the yellow pages off the shelf and looked under counselors and found a found Agape Youth and Family Services specializing in sexual abuse histories. And I call up total strangers and make an appointment. And for the first time in my life, I, I asked somebody, can you help me? And this is after our sixth child is born. So, you know, Kim... Kim was unaware of any of my addictions. She was unaware of what I had dragged into the, into the family. She was unaware of my history. Um, that was just closed off to anybody. And, and now it comes all just pouring out. So, so, you know, we have 12 grandchildren now. Kim and I are the best we've ever been. But it, it took 11 years after I blew up the world. It took 11 years for Kim to trust me again. And, um, and, and, Thank God for her fury, because she was furious. And part of the reason I'm as healthy today as I am is because of the intense fury of, of Kim. I call her the wrath of God, you know, so, um, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The wrath of God is, is the same emotional fire I feel if, if I can see that one of my kids is in danger or, you know, is suffering, that an addiction has a hold of them, or if they're like a daughter who's looking in the mirror thinking that she's not enough, you know I know that fiery fury, but it's not because I don't love them. In fact, it's because I do love them that that fury wants to burn away everything that is not of love's kind, um, that is hurting them. And that's, to me, what the wrath of God is. It's, it's always for us, never against us. And, um, and so, you know, uh, with 12 grandchildren who are all 12 years old and under, I, I can say, and my kids, would all, they laugh about this, but it's true. I am a way better grandfather than I was a father. And I was a good father. You know, if you, if you had a competition, I wouldn't have been in the bottom half. And, uh, uh, but it was, uh, a lot of it was just because I was, I was trying to do the right thing. It just wasn't coming from the inside out. It was coming from reading the books and trying to, you know, having a desire to love right. But if you don't deal with your stuff, it can't come. You know, freedom has to come from the inside out not from the outside in. And um, so, you know, my parenting would be much different now. My grandparenting is considerably different. Um, Let let me use this. Um, You know, there's a verse that a lot of us, at least my people, we grew up with, and that was, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the way it was translated into the English. So train up a child in the way they should go. So we were all trying to figure out you know, the way they should go, that's behavior, right? That's, they need to be perfect. They need to not fight. They need to, you know, not lie. They need to, you know. So we were trying to figure out what's, what's the, how do you train them in the way they should go? So 
So whatever the fad was, you know, Dare to Discipline came ripping through or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and, uh, and you know what? It, the Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew says, train up a child in their way, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Every hmm. child has their way. And of course, if you can discern and you can participate in training up a child in their way, of course they won't depart from it when they're old. But we were trying to put them into a box. We were trying to put, uh, we had six kids, so we had six kids trying to fit into the same box of the way they should go. And, and as soon as you create that kind of law, then your kids can't live up to it. And so they just go sideways. Or, and, and my kids are awesome. They're doing great. They, they uh, have their own relationship with Jesus. Four of them are married. That's why we have 12 grandbabies so far. And, um, but they're, they're healthy and good. But man, you know, I made, I made big mistakes in the way that I parented my kids. And I'm going to make some in my grandparents. And I still make some today when I get triggered and all that stuff. But way less than I used to, and I'm much more aware. So when you train up a child in their way, that means you need to take the time to be present to them, to try to discern who's, who are you. You know, because when they sure came out, you sure loved them with an unexpected, unbelievable capacity to love. And you didn't even know anything about them. And so the, love is based on knowing. And that is why a parent is absolutely perfectly positioned in this little human being's life to discern the uniqueness of who they are. And it's also why you can't discipline two children the same or reward two children the same. Or, and it's so like, let, let me stay close enough and, and, and watch and listen and ask the Holy Spirit to open my eyes about the uniqueness of this child and, and, and parent within that context rather than some objective, law-based, rules-based, behavioral modification-based um, perception of parenting. And, you know, being a grandparent's awesome because, you know, my kids beat the snot out of my self-centeredness by the time I got to be a grandparent. <laughs> and, um, and, and now I'm so much more present with them. And, and I'm so much more aware of, you know, you might not know how incredible you are, but I, I can see it. And I'm so much easier about them, them learning, you know, uh, uh, limitations and delayed drag gratification and how to distinguish themselves and they're fighting and they're, they're bickering and, and all that. And I'm, I'm so much better at being present in the midst of it all and going like, yeah, but I can see you. I can see you. And, uh, and I can hear you. And I think, I think it's one of the great losses in our culture is that we've lost that multi-generational presence in our lives. You know, a lot of cultures still have it, but, but in the West, I had w one great advantage, and that is Kim's dad, Willard, lived with us for 17 years and died on his 82nd birthday in 2002, surrounded by balloons and kids. And, uh, and my kids benefited from his presence in ways that will ripple through the generations. And um, we all called him Willie. The Willie in the shack is Kim's dad. I based the persona for Willie off of Kim's dad. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I do want to go to break at this time, and I was going to ask you uh, what you did to blow up the world, so I'll let you contemplate on whether that answer will be given in the beginning of the second segment, and we're going to take, obviously, sure. a deeper dive. I actually, I already told you. I, I kind of already told you, but... Okay. Yeah, but that was early on, wasn't it? <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was the year before I wrote The Shack. I mean, okay. no, 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 that was 94. <laughs> Um, and the 11 years ended the year before I wrote The Shack. So 94, yeah, it was early on in the sense that I was 38. We had six kids. That's not right at the beginning. So, you know, I was good 14 years, 15 years in the marriage before I blew up the world. Gotcha. Okay. So we'll be back in a minute. Uh, this segment and show has been brought to you by the Key Smiling Movement. And, of course, our producer, Andre Adams-Miller with the Red Carpet Connection. We'll be right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The Umbrella Syndicate amplifies good causes, good people, and good messages. They offer a suite of services that help people and businesses gain better exposure. Through working with the Umbrella Syndicate, you gain the ability to reach an audience of 50,000 unique people a week. They have recently reached over 20,000 followers on Facebook. You can view their photography and how they use it as a strong promotional tool on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash The Umbrella Syndicate. Show them your support by liking their page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. This is Amplify. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. We also would love to hear from you via email to info at umbrellasyndicate.com. Now, back to Amplify. Welcome back. This is Ken Roshan and Amplified with uh, the Q Smiling Movement, of course, providing and sponsoring this show. So we're so excited to have William Paul Young as our guest. And Andrea, I wanted to make sure I brought you in for a question. I'm, I'm sure you're biting at the bit after hearing that first segment. So go ahead. Oh, yes. Um, it was such a pleasure meeting you in Oregon. And the question I have is, you know, when you brought the book out and people started realizing that this was, a, you know, based on your life and, and truth in your life, and then uh, how, did, how did other people respond to that, knowing, you know, that your family didn't know that you had even written it? What, what was other people's and your other family members' response? Well, it was, it was my, my parents who didn't know. And... Um, um, and I never intended to, you know, write it for the world. I never intended to be a published author. It wasn't on my bucket list, and I didn't, I didn't write it for any other reason than a gift for my kids for Christmas. So, you know, why would anybody know about it? And and uh, when I made fifteen copies at Office Depot on their photocopier, you know, two hundred and some pages long, um, um. I gave it, you know, six copies to the kids at Christmas, and Kim and I kept one, and I had extras, and I gave them to my friends. And those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to, to do. So I never had an agenda to write something for the world. And, um, and so all of this has been an absolute surprise. And, and it's a beautiful one. 
Um, and it, it is ripped into the world in a way that nobody anticipated. I mean, 26 publishers, when, when we started talking about actually putting it in print, some guys in California wanted to turn it into a movie, and, and they saw that, they read that first manuscript. And, and um, um, when we were working on getting it ready for print, because, you know, if you can sell a novel and sell 100,000 copies, Hollywood will come talk to you about a movie. And uh, that's what they wanted. So 26 publishers turned it down, so two of the guys created a publishing house. And, I mean, it was just, the whole story is just a God thing. There's no, you can't just look at it and not laugh. It's, it's like, really? You know, that's like my mom. Who would have thought? And, and so it wasn't like I was hiding anything. It was, I wrote it for my kids. I gave it to my kids. It took them a while to read it <laughs> because, you know, you give a book to your kids at Christmas and it's like, thanks, Dad, a book. And then when it, when it got out there in 2007, you know, we were just hoping to work our way up to 100,000 in five years and then, and then Hollywood will talk to the guys about a movie. And I was working three jobs in Portland anyway. Um, and then in the first 13 months out of that garage in California, because one of the guys volunteered to ship books out of his house at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems in their yards during the day. And, um, and, but out of that house, the storage unit and the local printer, in the first 13 months, we spent less than 300 bucks in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the shack. So it's, it's a phenomenon. And, uh, and no, like I said, nobody saw it coming. And, and when you know my story, you know that it's, wow, this is a reward for a life of good choices. No, no, this is, this is the redeeming genius of God. Or, or if you know the Old Testament, I say, that, you know, this is proof that God can still speak through Balaam's ass. That's an Old Testament story but, but, uh, about a talking donkey. But anyway, the metaphor well, works. And well, Paul, a, yeah. I want to just cut in and say that we are uh, probably in precious time for how many questions we still have. So I'm going to just suggest that we um, do a little bit quicker responses just so we can get some of these other questions out. For instance, uh, why did you write the book, The Shack? I wrote it for my kids. I wrote it as a gift because Kim asked me to do it. Kim said someday as a gift for our children, would you just write something that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box? And so I was trying to, you know, do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. <laughs> and do, do you think parents should do this as well? I mean, do you think all parents should write a book to their kids? I, you know what? Nobody's ever asked me that. I think it's a great idea. If, you know, but again, it's, it's, it's not a performance thing, but a- anything you can do to open your world up to your children or something that you can give to your kids that is a part of your inside world, I think would, would help the world enormously. Would definitely build something in your relationship with your kids, for sure. So briefly, the 15 copies, they went to, obviously, your kids and, and some very close friends. Who was that friend that saw the light, so to speak, and had the connection and uh, catapulted this? Well, it wasn't, it w- yeah, it wasn't actually a friend. It was a guy who was a for real author that I had met because he needed a driver, and I drove him around for like <laughs> six and a half hours one day. And so when I started getting emails from my friends and their friends' friends, I sent a note down to California to a real author, the only one I'd ever met, and go like, what do you do with these emails? He says, what are you talking about? So he... I sent him an electronic version of the shack and 
and he, he makes some statements, which I totally understand. Like, uh, it's probably going to take me a long time to get to it. But he reads it over the weekend, and, and then he is the one that becomes the catalyst. He has two different friends who also don't know each other, <laughs> but one's in film, and the other one is somebody who is a friend of his, and they, together, they, they've been thinking about creating a publishing house at some point anyway, so all of this was, it came together as a nexus, so uh, they're the catalyst, and that's why the book got put in print. Well, since I'm a big believer in our shows being about gratitude and acknowledging people that make a difference, if you wish to share their names and thank them, you certainly are welcome to. Sure. So Wayne Jacobson, Brad Cummings, Bobby Downs, um, those were the guys in California that had a vision for this when I was so naive, I didn't have a clue. And, um, and without their participation, it wouldn't have happened the way that it did. And so, um, um, great thankfulness. And that process also, you know, um, working out all the details and all that healed some, some things in my own heart in that journey. And so I'm, I'll be forever grateful for that. Yeah, that was the disconnect for me when you told me you had printed 15. I was like, well, man, you must have some really good friends because that's some pretty good odds. But you did. I see how it all worked out now. Um, uh, well, I, I could say my, my friends are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because yes. obviously this wasn't, you know, God didn't do it by, by themselves, but I didn't do it by myself either. And, 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 you know, people come to these kinds of things with their own uh, motivation and history and all that kind of stuff. And it's just the weaver. It's just the redeeming brilliance of God who brings things together to, to form experiences like this. And you get to participate in something that you, you had no clue of and is too beautiful for words. Well, I want to thank you for being the giver and so open and available to make a difference in my life and so many others. I have, and I continue to do everything I can to promote you as a person that created themselves and that um, is serving a, a bigger entity and that anything is possible. So I want to thank you for doing a Keep Smiling book. And I wanted to ask you, when you did the template, the, uh, the book, uh, the chapter, what was that like for you? Um, and is there anything you want to share about that? Well, I, I like the idea, period. I think... Something as simple as a smile can ripple through the cosmos and change things. I, I think every human being matters and the choices that we make matter. And we live in a world where the constant push of social media and everything else is that you don't actually matter. You're just a, you're just a number. In fact, we don't even know if that's your real name that's on your little Twitter handle or whatever. And, and so an anonymity uh, creates a huge amount of dysfunction and bullying um, because you can, you can now hide behind an avatar. So real things and a smile, you know, a hug, a hug is real. It's, you can shake someone's hand and really be mad at them, but it's hard to hug them and, and hold on. And, uh, but a, a smile does that. So, so being involved in a project in which it, it's just creating a contagion of kindness or gratitude or thankfulness that has more power than all the destructive words that are out there. And um, so my participation in that, my mm, having the invitation uh, and the honor of participating in something uh, like that, just writing a short piece about where I'm coming from, that was a great kindness. And I, so thank you. 
You're welcome. And again, thank you. So I want to go to rapid fire, but I have a question that would be not a good rapid fire question. It is about when you blew up the world just to kind of, since I did tease the audience, I'm coming back with that. So I do want to say, uh, if we could keep this relatively brief, um, so we can get okay. to rapid fire questions. What was, when it, the world blew up, what was the game plan to restore love and to create um, the marriage you have now? How'd okay, you do so, it? Yeah, so I got, uh, we got married in 79, and we started having children. Uh, Chad, our oldest, was born almost on our first anniversary. And then we have six children over 13 years. So 13 years, uh, 14 years into this, in 1994, I get a one-sentence phone call from Kim. And Kim didn't know about the shack. She didn't know about my inside world. She didn't know about my addictions. She didn't know about my history. But she caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. I committed adultery. And I got a one-sentence phone call from her saying, I'm waiting at your office and I know. And in that moment, I had to make a decision whether to face her and face myself or kill myself. And, and, and you know what? I decided not to take the last way to run away, which suicide often is for those of us who, who walk this kind of line. And uh, it's the last way to run away before you hit the bottom. And I chose instead to hit the bottom. And there was no plan. I mean, Kim just took me apart, and she was furious. And, and so on, on a nudge, and I immediately, I, you know, her dad lived with us, and I had that evening had to go sit down with him. And it took me four days to tell Kim all. Because at that point, I'm like, I am not living with secrets anymore. So if we're going to do this, I need to tell you every secret I have. And naively, she said, bring it on. And it took four days, and it destroyed her. And she said, I'll never believe another word that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. I go then and I face the wind every day, one day at a time, like tell her dad. Our two oldest kids went through it with us because the younger ones were too young at the time. But I told her family, which is a huge family, and her nephews who love her, you know, and wanted to kill me. <laughs> and, um, and I told my family and I told, so there was this ongoing, like, there is no way we're going to make this adultery, the new secret. I'm done with secrets. They've been killing me my whole life. And then I pulled the yellow pages off the shelf and walk into total strangers and say, can you help me? And that starts a relationship with a therapist named Scott Mitchell, who became my friend eventually. And, and uh, I mean, he was my friend from the beginning, I, but he was my therapist. So, um, but that, you know, nine months of intensive work with him and, and then beginning to dismantle my theology. You know, Mackenzie spends a weekend in the shack. That weekend represents the 11 years starting with Kim's phone call and ending um, the year I, you know, when 2005 flips over the year I turned 50, I finally feel like the healthiest person I've ever felt. Uh, I, I've known, you know, one of the healthiest that I've known, and I have no secrets, no addictions. Joy's a constant companion. I get to be a child for the first time. I'm the same person in every situation. And now I feel healthy enough to do this thing Kim's been asking me to do, which is to write a story for my kids. So that's awesome. the big bird's eye picture of that journey. Thank you very much, Paul. And we're going to go rapid fire now. So obviously, quick questions, okay. right. quick answers. Uh, I'll start with the, okay. the most complicated, long rapid fire, which is still to be brief. Uh, you said you did three jobs before uh, you became the person you are now, meaning the author and speaker. What were those three I, I jobs? did three jobs while I wrote The Shack, yeah. 
Okay. So I've done well, many jobs. What were those three jobs, just briefly? Well, the ones that while I wrote the shack, I was doing shipping and receiving for a manufacturer's rep company, circuit boards, and I did all the janitorial. So I cleaned the toilets, and, I, and then I worked in a food processing hotline for a company. Then I did part-time stuff on the side, web conferencing, hotel night clerk. For about oh, two and a half right. years, I was constantly doing three jobs, yeah. Yep. All right, Andrea? What's a song that gets you motivated, lifts you up? Um, Lord of the Starfield by Bruce Coburn. Uh, or The Gift by Bruce Coburn. So, Very yeah, cool. those two. And Coburn is spelled C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, if anybody wants to look it up. And we do, Link, so that's good. So, uh, since uh, th- this book has changed so many people in the world, what book or two has changed your world? Ooh. Uh, right now, I am stuck on Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is just unbelievably powerful and but if you took my whole life I'd go like probably The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry um, yes wow. but the books books have been yeah books have been fantastic in my life I mean they're one of the mentors that showed me through example you know and what they wrote how to listen and hear for myself and I'm grateful for books it's amazing how often that Little Prince uh, is is said in our show. So what? A, and I did. I, I think it's a marvelous piece too, uh, Andrea. If you had a superhuman power, what would it be, Paul? Oh, that one's easy for me. My kids are all about superheroes, so um, grandkids. Um, I would like to speak and understand every language on the planet fluently. <laughs> oh, nice. That's a that good power. <laughs> The um, that would be that way. I would never meet a stranger, you know. <laughs> yeah, we we argue that the smile is the universal expression that gets that going too. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, I believe yeah. that. All right. So, um, a quote you live by, Paul. Um, George MacDonald. Good souls, many, will one day be horrified at what they now believe of God. You can make little progress in the knowing of God while holding evil things true of him. Wonderful. And since I would like to give you an opportunity to actually tell the people you love that you love them. Uh, Who do I love? Yeah, just whoever you would like to dedicate the show to. Tell them you love them. Ooh, come on. Well, obviously, Kim. I mean, uh, apart from her, we would not even be close to having this conversation. Um, and my my kids, who are so forgiving, and and my grandkids, and then um, you know the in law kids, uh, then a whole bunch of friends. But I can I can look back at my life and go like, there were people who showed up when I was broken or lost, you know, whether I was a little boy or was in college or high school or whatever. You know, my high school friends. Hans Turtletaub and David Lewis, you know, without them, I don't know if I'd have made, made it through high school. And then um, Ruth Rambo, who showed up, you know, and when I was in college and, and, and whispered truth to me and, and saw me when, when other people couldn't. So Renee Greenwich and, you know, the, uh, you, start, you start thinking about the, the history and the threads that have been woven into your life. And man... You know, we're here today because of so many tributaries that 
connected to our river at one point or another. And um, I am so deeply grateful. Well, thank you, Paul. And this has been a wonderful show. Thank you so much for giving us an hour and giving the world such a, a beautiful gift. And we will continue to amplify your leadership and your love. And of course, the Q Smiling book is one of my favorite that I like to share. So thank you very much, Paul. This is Bless Ken you. Rashan on Amplified and with our producer, Andre Adams Miller. And this show has been brought to you by the Q Smiling Movement. Thank you and keep your life amplified. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashad again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, go get your message heard.